0: Today's guest has been acclaimed for his direction of both plays and musicals in both England and on Broadway, with perhaps the best-known productions being Miss Saigon, Carousel, The Madness of George III, and The History Boys. Since 2003, he has been Artistic Director of the Royal National Theatre, where he has produced such work as War Horse, now at Lincoln Centre Theatre and in the West End, and Frankenstein, directed by Danny Boyle. He also introduced the revolutionary, and he live, series of movie theatre presentations of national productions. From London... Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Centre. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and it is an honour to meet Sir Nicholas Heitner.
1: It's very, very good to talk
0: to you. Thank you for talking with me. Um, I read that when your appointment came to run the National, that some of the other directors of your generation had been less interested in the job but that it was something that had always been a goal of yours. Was, in fact, the National something you always had in your sights? No, I don't think it was.
1: I, I think I knew at some point I would want to run a theatre, and I was an associate director of the National um, from the late 80s through uh, Richard Eyre's directorship, and therefore knew the National very well and, and felt part of it, and When it came up, it was in 2001 that it came up. Um, Trevor Nunn decided that he would move on in 2001. I finally realized that there was stuff I wanted to do, that there was a way I could imagine of doing it, that there were things that hadn't been done yet that I might try to do. I think everybody who comes to the National has to have fresh ideas about it. That's how it stays vital. Um, There's obviously a degree of continuity. There's, uh, There's a degree of continuity that stretches right back to Um, the first conception of it in the 1890s by George Bernard Shaw and William Archer um, through the extraordinary Lillian Bayliss years at the Old Vic through to the foundation of the National itself in 1963 under Laurence Olivier there are ideas that go through a century that predate even its foundation but every director since 63 has brought firm ideas about how it should be and it, it was only when I started to formulate those ideas um, that I decided I wanted to go for it.
0: One thing I read was that you were interested in the reconciliation of the popular with the intellectually ambitious.
1: I think that's the hallmark of the British theatre. I think that stretches back right to the 1580s and 90s. We're very fortunate, I think, in the... uh, you might say, the whole Anglo-Saxon tradition, because I think the Irish and the American theatre share this with us. Our roots are in an intellectually and emotionally ambitious popular theatre. The roots of many of our European neighbours are in a court theatre. Although Moliere, for instance, started off playing the popular crowds, he was subsumed by the court. The French tragedians were court writers. The German tragedians were court writers. The great Central European theatres were very often functions of the state. Ours wasn't. Ours was a popular theatre on the South Bank of the Thames, three theatres, one of which was The Globe, all of them dependent on box office, all of them also dependent on a degree of court patronage. But it meant that our great playwrights have always had to embrace the widest possible audience for survival. Now, that obviously uh, is a feature of the American theatre. You might say that the American theatre is more extremely commercial and extremely dependent on the popular audience even than ours is. But it's that synthesis of a degree of court patronage, always an aristocratic interest in the theatre, but it is the synthesis of that with popular appeal the popular audience that makes our theater what it is and i think that's what the national has to be about three houses two of them vast we play to three quarters of a million people on the south bank every year if we played always to the lowest common denominator we would not justify our existence we wouldn't justify the money we get from the state but on the other hand so we are obliged to be Ambitious,
0: But on the other hand, if we can't be ambitious and popular, we'd fold. Well, you mentioned money from the state, and we're at a time where in the United States there are renewed threats on the National Endowment for the Arts. There are severe budget cuts being taking place in the Arts Council over here. How much does that kind of patronage affect what you do and is there any risk coming up for the yeah, national
1: there's an enormous amount of risk the national will probably see through it or um or we'll get to the other side of it um through a combination of good fortune we have war horse that will if it if it um if it goes on working if it if it works uh, as well in new york as it's worked in london that will help uh, we also in london have started to play the game that you play, We, you're not-for-profits play. We, we, we're much better at raising money from generous individuals and from corporations. That won't be the case outside of London. It's going to be a disaster outside of London. So, we, yeah, we'll get through it. There is a threat, and we are more dependent. The money we get through the Arts Council is much more part of our DNA than... The NEA um, is to you're not for profits. Thirty percent of the National's money comes from the taxpayer. Hmm. When I started, it was closer to fifty percent. When the National started on the South Bank, it was sixty percent. The German theatres get ninety percent. Ninety percent of their money comes from the taxpayer. Hmm. It means their ticket prices are very low. I think that one of the things that subsidy has to do in this country is keep the ticket prices low. But the other thing it does is enable us to put on for a limited number of performances, the kind of shows that you simply couldn't do in a commercial arena.
0: Well, what are shows that you've done that you think or know could not be done commercially? Well, I,
1: the, the entire Cottesloe rep of, uh, of Ambitious New Plays, some of them take fire. Most of them don't. Um, most of them play um, between 60 and 100 performances and their writers get stronger and better uh, and their writers are able... To become better writers, by sometimes writing for um, popular media, sometimes writing plays which are designed to be seen by a great many people, and sometimes writing exactly the play they want to—they uh, want to write. Uh, it's in that way that they become better and more complex, and also more productive. Just coming up immediately. Any minute now, we're going to produce a great mid-period Ibsen epic called Emperor and Galilean. It's never been done professionally in English, never. So Hmm. really important. I'd never heard
0: of it. I walked by the poster today. Really
1: important, really exciting play. Uh, Historical epic about the Emperor Julian, the apostate, the emperor who, who, uh, a generation or two after Constantine, Uh, came within a whisker of turning the worship of the Roman Empire back from Christianity to the old gods. And had he succeeded, of course, the whole history of Western Europe would be quite different. It's a wonderful play. It's four hours. Who's going to do it if we don't? And it needs a huge cast. And it's important it gets done. Now, I happen to believe uh, in a city, in a country, in which the performance of an important mid-period epic by Ibsen um, is regarded as something which... while by no means compulsory, people are free to dislike it or be bored by it or not come. But it's something. The very fact that it's here um, seems to me to be as important almost as the fact that the Rosetta Stones in the British Museum.
0: Hmm. You speak of the fact that you're doing that show in the Cottesloe, which is no.
1: We're doing that. We're not. We're oh. doing. We're doing. Um, as it happens, we're doing and Galilean in the Olivier. Oh, okay. In the you, you let
0: in differently. Yeah. So you're doing that in an eleven hundred seat yeah, theater. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, and and because because we're doing it as part of what is now the twelve pound season, the X season. Fifty thousand people will come and see it. That's mm. not many. That's not many in a big city like this. But it it keeps that play alive, and then it will be in rep with new plays by young writers in the Cottesloe, and also, even more importantly, from the National Theatre's point of view, new plays by young writers in the Olivier and the Littleton and new plays by established writers in the Olivier and the Littleton. Uh, I was very dismayed. This was one of the things that um, drove me to uh, to take on the National. I was dismayed by what felt like a flight of... Writers, directors, and actors into studio spaces. Uh, it's wonderful if you're there. There's something immensely involving um, and moving often about seeing any kind of play uh, in a room small enough so that you can imagine almost you can touch the actors. To see a great play, to see Shakespeare or Chekhov in a room with only 200 people, you feel enormously privileged. Um, but that's the rub. It's a, it, it's not, you're not necessarily financially privileged. You're privileged just by virtue of the fact that you're part of the club that you managed to get in. Uh, it's also very easy to act and very easy to direct a great text in a small space. Now, all the energy was going there in the 90s. And writers, the young generation of writers, had been given no opportunities for quite a while because of financial constraints to write in a muscular popular fashion to translate their ideas and their feel for narrative and character and and for the um, thematic material they wanted to explore. They'd not been given the chance to translate that into a popular arena, an arena which made it feel as if what they were doing was part of the national conversation. You can't be part of the national conversation in a small room on top of a pub. You just can't. You're part of an important but privileged conversation. Soon as you're on in the Olivier or in the West End... You're doing what the London Theatre's always done. You're reaching out, finding, yeah, in, the, in global terms, a small number of people. But in theatrical, cultural terms, a large number of people, you're available to a large number of people. You are galvanising them if you're writing well, if you're acting well. You're nudging at the way they think and feel. Now, we can do that at The National. You cannot do that in a room above a pub. That's why The National's important.
0: You spoke about the travel X season, which originally 10 pounds, now 12 pounds for tickets, a large number of tickets available. As you say, Emperor and Galilean is going to be part of that this year. It would seem to me that that is such a bargain that people are coming in because they can. And I'm wondering, when you say you want to be part of the national conversation, certainly, when you make theatre that accessible, you're bringing in a lot more people who might be part of it yeah. are these people who necessarily understand what they're coming in for do you sense a difference in the audiences and do you have to either prepare them or program for them in a way that you might not if they were paying the regular ticket price for under the regular structure
1: well first of all it depends what you mean by the regular ticket price um the uh, for a western musical which is popular entertainment you're paying a great deal more than you're paying to see ibsen at the national theatre oh Theater. sure i mean so, i just
0: i just picked up tickets for this evening and they were 44 pounds a piece yeah, that's, so that's at your subsidized price yes that's right but yeah. that's still four times almost four times yeah. what you would pay in the travel x season
1: yeah so the objective was that you should feel able to roll the dice on a show at the National, the way you roll a dice on the on a movie. It's not that you particularly go to a movie with low expectations, but you go to a movie maybe
0: experimentally. I don't know whether I'm going to enjoy it or not. But You're less invested, both literally and figuratively, when you go to a movie.
1: Well, I think literally is important. Figuratively is because, in the end, the theatre is more demanding and the rewards are greater uh, if... It takes fire for you. And I think the frustration is commensurately greater if it doesn't work for you. Bad theatre is simply unendurable. A bad movie, you can go to sleep and eat the popcorn. Um, But it's important that it should be within everybody's pocket. It's important that as far as possible, um, what you earn and now um, with NT Live where you live, should not disbar you from being part of the audience at the National Theatre. Now, we couldn't do um, a mid-period Ibsen epic or a new play by an untried writer without a star, ambitious, not necessarily a bundle of laughs, maybe searing. You couldn't do that in the commercial arena, nor could you keep alive the tradition of classical dance or contemporary dance without uh, a degree of taxpayer involvement, uh, nor could you keep the museums free without a, a degree, augment the collections without a degree of taxpayer involvement. It's a delicate ecology and one that I think is fantastically productive.
0: You bring up the NT Live, which I mentioned in the introduction. Certainly that makes even more work, more accessible geographically, price-wise, the ability certainly in the U.S. to go and see productions. I saw the Phaedra uh, through NT Live. But fundamentally, doesn't seeing theater filmed, even if it's shot live or transmitted live, Change the experience? Yeah, sure it does. Sure it does. Nobody's pretending that it's uh, it's the same thing as
1: sitting in the in the auditorium, and ultimately the experience. Um, is always going to be at its best, if you're there on the night in the same room, the way it's been for 2,500 years. But we have this technology now, and how negligent it would be, how negligent, how disgracefully negligent it would be for us not as quickly as possible to see what we can do with it. Uh, I was by no means sure that those live broadcasts would work. Uh, I'd seen them from the met i'd seen opera and dance in cinemas i knew why they worked i thought there might be reasons why theater wouldn't i thought that we might end up looking like a second-rate cinematic experience because the frame of reference you bring to the opera is plainly not the frame of reference you bring to a movie whereas the frame of reference you bring to the theater is dangerously close to the movie frame of reference it, Actors talking actors, maybe who you 've seen in movies, I was worried you would see them shot rather flat, acting rather large in visually rather static presentations. The thing we aimed for, and I hope the thing we succeed in in achieving is to turn the cinema as far as possible into a theater, not to turn the theater into I- into cinema now. It's a different experience. It's an equivalent experience. It's neither theatre nor movie. But the fact is we can in one night in this country alone double the audience for the entire run that we get at the National Theatre. We get a tiny bit of everybody's money in this country. The U.S. is a wonderful bonus, but it's not what it's about. Uh, Australia, South Africa. In fact, we're in 22 countries now. 21 of them are a great bonus. One of them is why we do it, because I feel very responsible mm. to the taxpayers and citizens of this country. And there are we tour a lot, but there are places we can't go to because they don't have theatres. It's amazing that we can now be uh, in a relatively small Scottish town or in some art centre in the West Country, live, to people who we know from the um, feedback we've got a thrill that they can walk down the road and come see national theater show
0: the fact that you say you want to make it as much like going to the theater as possible i had a funny reaction when i went to the phaedra which was the first at least to come over to the u.s uh, which was i missed not having a program
1: yeah no that's too expensive for us and i'm not <laughs> I, I, you can and i think i don't how, how how far are we down the road to making them downloadable you can certainly download quite a lot of material hmm.
0: But again, to the experience. Yeah. Let's take a jump back and talk about how you first got involved in theatre. You grew up in Manchester. That's right. And at the time you were growing up, was there much theatre to see in Manchester?
1: Yeah, there was. Not enough. Um, but there were um, a couple of reps in Manchester and, um, which survive, one of which turned into the Royal Exchange Theatre, which is a wonderful theatre. And some reps in... Towns around Manchester, several of which have now disappeared, which mm. is, which is th- the way things were in the 80s. And I have a horrible feeling that there'll be another round of disappearances now in, in this decade. Uh, the National Theatre toured, the RSC toured, English National Opera and the Royal Ballet toured. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had, um, I had parents who were interested, interested to the extent that I was taken far too young to see Fontaine and Nureyev dance Swan Lake. All I can remember is being taken to see it. I can't, rem- I can't remember what they were like at all. Um, by the time I got to college, I went to Cambridge. I was very, very interested. And I went down the road that, embarrassingly, four of my five predecessors went down, which was to start directing student productions at Cambridge. And then serve an apprenticeship uh, as first Dog's Body, then assistant, uh, for the first few years that I worked in the theatre we have we certainly had then we're better now very little formal training for directors uh, and it's not an unmixed blessing that so many of the directors in the British Theatre the last few decades have been university trained non-actors but that's what most of us are mm-hmm. uh, and and we get experience by by seconding ourselves to good people, and then, in my case, went out into the reps and did some bad work uh, and started to realise why it was bad. It was tough on the actors I was working with in the early days, but it's uh, that's that's how I got better.
0: Hmm. Interestingly, you mentioned the Royal Exchange briefly. You became the associate director of the Royal Exchange. That's right, yeah. in In the mid-'80s, and for somebody who had... Left home, gone off to Cambridge, you're directing regionally. Had London been part of your experience yet? or had you just stayed in the regions and gone back to Manchester? No, I
1: couldn't wait to get out of Manchester. Um,
0: so, so then why come back?
1: Beca- they- well, because uh, d- d- even, even when I went back and worked at the Royal Exchange, I considered London to be my home, and I was, I was, uh, I was camping out back in Manchester to be part of that theatre for the years that I was there. Uh, Manchester was a miserable place when I was growing up. It's much better now. It's great. Um, but uh, there's uh, an undoubtedly unhealthy concentration of cultural riches, of, of more or less everything in London, of, of, of wealth and of power, uh, and you kind of have to be here. Uh, there's, there is an equivalent to Chicago, and it's um, Edinburgh, Glasgow. Hmm. Uh, outs- but in England, uh, the reps struggle. I think that if you are a theatre-goer, a theatre-maker, uh, and you live – Edinburgh and Glasgow are relatively close to each other, and you live in Scotland – You can you can know that you can make yourself a very rewarding and productive career by staying in Scotland. If you're in England, you have to come to London really.
0: Hmm. So you went back to Manchester, you spent four years at the Royal Exchange, some of the work, and I'm sure I'm just touching on it, you were doing things like Don Carlos and The Country Wife and Edward II while you were there. It was
1: mostly classics.
0: You then did some work with the Royal Shakespeare Company right. within that that same period.
1: It overlapped, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so you came to London.
1: Yeah.
0: And how quickly did work come? Well,
1: I came to London in the late 70s, early 80s, after I'd left Cambridge. I assisted in theatre and opera and... The first London work I did was in opera. I got, and which is one of the reasons that the big spaces, the big theatres, the big stages, have never been a big deal to me because I, I did a lot of my training with opera choruses. Um, I always felt slightly uncomfortable in opera and have done relatively little over the last twenty years. Um, but it, it, I was doing productions for um, English National Opera at the Colosseum, which is the biggest theatre in London, before I was 30. My first national show was in 1989, and my work in London since 1989 um, has been largely focused on the national, although I, I have done a handful of shows in the West End and on Broadway, as you know.
0: Well, that handful includes Miss Saigon. Yes. Now, the fact that you've done this opera work, you Certainly, know. that you were doing something that's more closer to musical theater, though. Yeah. Um, well, Miss Saigon is, that-
1: is a pop opera. I yeah. don't know. I still don't know whether Cameron would totally agree with that. <laughs> Cameron Mackintosh would totally agree with that. But I think Miss Miss Saigon and Les Mis are more popular opera than they are musical. Really, I think. I think one of the reasons they succeeded, and one of the reasons that they still have such a pull on the wider public imagination is that they have all the emotional extravagance of opera, um the emotional availability of opera. Uh, and at the same time they're written in um a popular idiom. Uh they're not musical comedies in the American tradition. They are they're they're popu- they're popular operas in the European tradition, I think.
0: You said that big stages don't frighten you. No. So certainly taking on... I mean, you're saying popular opera. We're using musical theatre. There's also the phrase mega-musical, yeah. which that falls into the category of. I would assume that...
1: Well, I, think, the, I
0: think the term mega-musical gets redefined every season,
1: <laughs> from, from what I can see from this side of the Atlantic. Well,
0: <laughs> that aside, <laughs> um, being, doing opera is still in a subsidized environment. That's right, yeah. Working in a commercial environment, was that the first opportunity that you'd had to do commercial work?
1: Um, I think maybe it was.
0: So was there something fundamentally different to the process you're working with? As you said, Cameron McIntosh, a hugely successful commercial producer. You are working on piece by the guys who wrote lame is a worldwide phenomenon did you feel more on your shoulders working on that show i didn't I, i i didn't from what i remember what i felt was that
1: i had i had all the resources in the world at my disposal that it felt that i didn't have the um budgetary constraints and the practical restraints of the work that i'd been used to doing um There's a misconception that in the subsidised sector, we're profligate. We're not. We're much less profligate than I think a lot of commercial producers are. Cameron knows exactly how and where to spend the money. So in conceiving and staging the show, it felt like anything was possible. Um, It was also not totally right when... You describe Miss Saigon as as being, as it were, the progeny of something which is already a worldwide phenomenon. Les Mise was only three or four years old. Yes, it was hugely successful. But at the time, who knew that it would last several centuries? Um, And we had no idea. I, the thing that was attractive about Miss Saigon to me, I remember at the time, was that it felt completely crazy. What are you kidding? A, a popular opera about about the evacuation of the American embassy in Saigon? It's kept it felt nuts. Um, and it was that element of craziness, the, the fact that it was happening because the two guys who wrote it wanted to write it. The producer really loved it. I was really um, jazzed by it. That's what made it successful. The history of the commercial theater is littered with attempts to repeat a formula that just worked. Um Miss Saigon, whatever else it was, was not that. It was not an attempt to repeat anybody's formula. It felt at the time to be generous.
0: Hmm. You talk about the budget. I mean certainly having everything at your disposal. In an odd way, can also sometimes be a dangerous thing. Yes, and there it are can. so many directors who talk about the benefit of limitations, and I've read and again. You may correct me, but that in hindsight, the whole helicopter thing
1: yeah, became well, Ca- a little too much. Well, Cameron was right about that, and I was—I would have been wrong because Cameron realized that th- that that element of 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 out-and-out out spectacle was one of the things that was going to pull in the crowd. Once they'd been pulled in, the thing that kept them there and the thing that made them tell their friends it was good was how emotionally involving it was. It was a, it was a, it was a human story on an epic background, which is, what operas, which is what the best operas, certainly the best 19th century operas, often are. Um, small individual crises set against vast social upheaval. That, without being too pretentious, which sounds rather pretentious, is what Miss Saigon uh, turned out to be. But um I th- kept thinking, oh, I could do this. I could do this without the machine. And no doubt I could, but it wouldn't have been as popular. <laughs> um, I've never worked and have no ambition to work with that kind of budget since. I do prefer working with some kind of constraint. And I've particularly enjoyed the last eight years when the constraint has been self-imposed. Uh, the way we've made the X £10, now £12 season work has been uh, to be extremely disciplined uh, about how we spend on the things that we can really make a difference on, sets, costumes... Uh, props production values extremely disciplined frugal austere we've by saving in that area uh we keep ticket prices down i thought that audiences would start to resent that the opposite has happened Uh, our production teams our creative teams uh respond to the constraints by being doubly imaginative and I'm not sure anybody notices anymore.
0: Well, I was going to say, I've seen work at the National over more than the past decade. And whether it's by the pieces I've chosen to see, I've seen No Lessening. I was here a few months ago and saw Blood and Gifts, a new play. And, yeah. you know, it had a large cast. And the physical production was as elegant and complete as one could imagine. Yes. So I'll say I don't see it. Blood
1: and, blood and Gifts... Uh, had was in the Littleton and had an average Littleton budget. But uh, if, you, if I just think through the £10 shows last season, they all looked pretty great. Hmm. Uh, I, I could list for you the telltale signs, but I won't.
0: After you first did Saigon hmm. here in London, I think before it came to New York, you had a great success with seemingly a very different piece, Wind in the Willows. Well, that was the first. That was the first
1: of my collaborations with Alan Bennett, um, and I offered to uh, to Richard Eyre to do a big family-friendly show for Christmas because I kind of fancied doing that. And I now know that if you're the director of the National Theatre, someone. Saying I'd quite like to do a big family-friendly show, which lots of people are going to want to see, uh, is exactly the kind of offer you you want to get all the time. And Alan Bennett had just read the book on the radio, so he was a pretty obvious first port of call. And it turned out Richard had already, a couple of years previously, asked him to write a play about Kenneth Graham, who wrote The win in the Willows. We went to Alan. Alan agreed to adapt it. Um, we made, a, we used all the stage machinery, all the stage machinery that's part of the Olivier. We made a, exactly that, an attractive, family-friendly show, which came back and back and back, but much more important to me. Um, Alan, a year or so afterwards, shoved the script for The Man of Sir George III through my door, and I've directed all his plays since. And that's uh, that's been in a way the most important feature of my career as a director a director as opposed to producer being able to 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 direct all alan's plays so out of that came the lady in the van the history boys the habit
0: of art and i i he i don't think he stopped not by any means so i hope there'll be more you say the most important feature in terms of External recognition or important no, no, feature no, no, for no. you as an no. artist? I, my, my personal satisfaction,
1: uh, honestly. Uh, external recognition I'm, is, is
0: is because certainly, Madness of George the Third, History Boys, huge successes.
1: Yes, um, but enormously satisfying. Much more important. Much more important. I think any any true theatre artist has their own internal list of what was good and what was bad, and if they're any good at all, um, it will not be the same list as um, their friends or colleagues or certainly not um, the critical community would make for them.
0: Well, that leads to an obvious question, which is, of the work that you've done at any point in your career, what would you say is the work that is most meaningful to you that may not have been as recognized or accepted by, by the public, the critical community, the the business at large
1: well it's not so much about it not being recognized or accepted it's what it's what has really resonated with me um that it's no surprise that the history boys the man of george III, um were enormously important to me um i did a, a much do about nothing with um with simon russell beale and zoe wanamaker which uh which which was it was successful, but it was it. Uh, I remember it as being enormously important. Um, the Hamlet I've just done, but maybe because that was so recent, that's the
0: Hamlet with Rory. Kinnear. Yeah,
1: um, I hugely enjoyed doing a Martin McDonough play back in the nineties, um, Cripple of Inish. Yeah. yeah, and I think the Pillar Man, which I didn't direct, which we produced. Um the first or second year that I was director of the national is probably the single best new play that we've produced um, so uh i've made personal discoveries along the way. I never knew that I had any time for the plays of Bernard Shaw, but um, doing Major Barbara, I suddenly got it, and that was that was important to me uh, so. There's all, there's all sorts of things I've had the opportunity to do at the National because I've been the one who has been choosing for myself. Sometimes what I've done is do a play for the National, not necessarily because it's top of my own personal agenda, but because it's something that the theatre needed. Well, that's something artistic directors do. And I've, al- I've always enjoyed it, always. Hmm.
0: As we're shifting back and forth from the National and other work... Um This was for The National. I wanted to ask you about The Carousel, which was so revelatory to people both here and in the US. Um, What drew you to Carousel?
1: I loved it. Um, And at the time, the uh, reinvestigation of the Golden Age musicals the Broadway Golden Age musicals ha- had not started here in London. Um, there'd been a Guys and Dolls at the National Theatre. But uh, what turned into a string of revivals of Broadway Golden Age musicals had not started. So it felt fresh. It felt a fresh and interesting thing to do at the time to bring to that show um, the same kind of approach that you would bring to any um, English-language classic um, I loved the show, I loved the music, uh, and I really wondered what it would be like doing it at some place like the National Theatre.
0: Was it, over here, a show that was familiar to people at that point, or it had been largely forgotten? No, I think it was, it was
1: familiar enough, I do it, it wasn't very often revived, um, But it was particularly to a certain generation. The the movie got shown on television. I think more to the point, um, it was not thought to be. Rogers and Hammerstein were not thought to be um, major theatrical artists, major theatrical innovators. They were thought to be creators of sentimental popular entertainment, trying trying to uh, explore the idea that they were a great deal more than that, seemed worth doing. Now, th- this was, it's not that long ago. It was, what, the early nineties, about 20 years ago. This really was before, oh, I think, gold Age musicals became over-familiar on the, London Age st- on the London stage. And I've done relatively few, very few musicals since I started at the National. i thought enough already. I've um, been v- very happy to play host to Fela, to George Wolfe, uh, who came over and directed for us, um, Caroline or Change. Uh, very early on in my directorship, we did Jerry Springer, the opera, which was absolutely wonderful. And I wondered whether it would be the start of something. In fact, it was a kind of one off. But that's it. That's mm. basically it. Um, I don't think that musicals are a central part of the London tradition, the British tradition. I just don't. They're, they're part, they are a vital vibrant part of the american tradition i don't i don't think it's what it's we, we've not we've we've historically not written very many it's not what we do dazzlingly well i'll stick my neck out and say that if you go to see a song and dance show in london it's not going to be as well done as it's done on broadway hmm. uh, so i've been a bit sparing with that we've got two new ones coming up over the next 15 months totally new one of them entirely experimental. But it doesn't seem to me to be something that we need to be over-concerned about here, I think. Uh, uh, Even the infrastructure is not as developed as it is
0: in New York. So what was it like? I mean, you'd certainly done it with Saigon, but you, as we all know, brought over a couple of key cast members. There was a lot of uproar about that at the time. When you came over to the U.S. to do Carousel, you did not bring any of the English cast, am I correct?
1: Uh, Michael Hayden had already done it Oh, I didn't realize Michael
0: had done it here. But with the exception of Michael, you casted anew. Yeah. Was there a different experience directing the play with an American cast than with a British cast?
1: Well, in some respects, I don't think, strange enough, I would classify Carousel as a song and dance show. Of course, it makes extreme requirements of the choreographer. But at its centre is a play, a a complex, ambiguous play that needs terrific actors who can also sing. It was different, but different because of the different personalities of the actors. The dancing was better on Broadway.
0: Hmm. Full stop. Since we're talking about musicals, you also had the experience of doing a new musical. In the U.S. Yeah. on Broadway, yeah. Sweet Smell of Success, yes. which ultimately did not have a long run. No, no, it was a total flop. What was that experience for you, a problematic one, a frustrating one, or simply one that didn't fly? It was a wholly
1: positive experience until, until the press decided it was not a success. Hmm. Um, it, it was enormously satisfying. It, was, it never felt like it was a show in trouble. Um we always thought we were doing something good, and I still think the work was good. I still think it 's an absolutely marvelous show what i can 't talk for whether I did it well or not, whether it was the right production of it it 's a really good musical i 'm a hundred percent confident that there will come a time when that musical is reevaluated, and those who dismissed it will forget, they dismissed it. Uh, quite a lot of that happened in the two or three years after it closed. It opened at the wrong time. It might have been the wrong production. It was extremely well performed. Uh, John Lithgow, Brand R C. James, absolutely wonderful. I thought it was a great score, but it, you know, what can I tell you? It's a flop. There you go. Uh, back to our own internal lists of things that were worth doing being different from those that are imposed on us. Hmm. But I remember it as being and entirely productive and, and pleasurable, really pleasurable. Hmm. It opened out of town in Chicago. Um, and funnily enough, in Chicago, it was thought that it was, uh, I think it was thought to be on its way. We thought, oh yeah, no, there's things wrong here and things wrong here. We'll fix this, we'll fix that. And Would then, you want to
0: have another go at it yourself? At Sweet Smell?
1: Yeah. I think I'd probably be the wrong person to. I think somebody somebody else should come. And and, and um, I think some some. Some young ones should come. And do uh, you know, I think one great feature of the studio theatre scene has been the re-examination of apparently, apparently um, uh, failed musicals with scaled-back orchestrations. Somebody should have a go at Sweet Smell like that. There's a problem. There's, there's an inherent problem. There's a an, there's an, maybe insuperable problem. Uh, which is a problem caused by the availability of everything on DVD. Uh, 99 people out of 100 who came to see that show had either never seen the movie or seen it so long ago that they'd forgotten it. That's a fact. I suspect if you made a musical of, of one of the of one of one great 1930s comedies, of Adam's rib or something, um, which we've all seen, you wouldn't remember it when you went in, and 99 people out of 100... would would either not have seen it or won't remember it, won't even remember how it turns out. But the people who do know how it turned out, um, the people who have watched the DVD, are the people who write about it and judge it, quite rightly. They're doing their job. They watch the DVD the afternoon they come see the show. Hmm. For that reason, I would never recommend anybody to produce a musical based on a movie, particularly not on a good movie, particularly as it happens on a good movie about the very trade that the people who are going to judge it are themselves members of, um, to try and do a musical of a movie about the press and probably the musical, the movie about the press that the press themselves like most, um, it was commercially not so smart an idea. I think that might always get in the way of a proper evaluation of that show.
0: Hmm. Another piece that you did, you talked about the holiday shows at the National, one that's come back several times. His dark materials. A big epic. Too big, a much piece. too big. Um, it's interesting to me that for all of its success, and I have a niece who was beside herself to get over mm. here to see it when she was perhaps thirteen yeah. years old, because she knew the book. Um, we've not seen that in the US.
1: No well it was it was that was um, conceived for the Olivier stage and it was conceived to use to the utmost, um, everything that the Olivier stage is physically capable of doing, that production um, could never have moved. Hmm. And I have to say that the transfer of shows from the National is of no concern. Um, it's great when it happens. Fantastic that War Horse has been a such a success. That's wonderful. But it's never what we're thinking about. Never. Hmm. Uh, and in the case of a show like Dark Materials, um, there's no way. No way that uh, that you, that that could ever have gone elsewhere. Somebody should do it, but the problem with it is is that it takes two evenings to perform, and they're long evenings, and they do need a degree of extravagance of imagination in the staging. I s- just said I think it was too big. I now wish... If I, don't, if I did it now... I would be less concerned to show off the Olivier Stage Machinery. The Olivier Stage Machinery had been out of commission for quite a long time and it felt like a great thing to do in my first year at the National to give my colleagues who had restored it and renovated it a chance to show it off. Hmm. Um, it's a amazing. St- it was beautifully adapted by Nicholas Wright. Amazing story. And certainly here, um, simply by announcing we were doing it, we sold... I, I didn't even realize this is what would happen. We sold huge numbers of tickets to people who knew the books. So that was uh, that was a, a, an exciting thing to do.
0: Though you say transfers, and I assume you're referring both to West End or over to the U.S., are not essential for you. I'm wondering if – well, I'm wondering what your feeling is about – Whether things, everything that is a success here, can play in the U.S. because we always hear that. Well, it's interesting, but we hear about plays that don't come over, or people plays that are being considered that people say Americans won't get this; it's too British. But quite often, the actors are busy, or or or
1: people have moved on to other things, or. Or it just doesn't seem that big a deal to do it again,
0: right, but I remember some skepticism as to whether history boys would play in the u s
1: yeah I think I think we all wondered whether it would, but it came to the u s at the end of a of um, a short and very enjoyable global tour um, and everybody was still enjoying doing it. There are other shows which I think haven't haven't gone on because everybody felt. Well, that was it. We, we squeezed what we could out of that when We had a great time. Why Why sh- we don't particularly want to do it again? Sometimes an experience is so good that you don't want to risk undermining it by extending it beyond its sell-by date and and risking playing it in an arena which will be less hospitable to it. So um, it, it's obviously, you know, it's great. It's great when it happens. It's, ex- it's exciting for us to be in a different environment. Um, in some ways, New York is very similar. In other ways, it's extremely different and very exciting. It's a ex- really exciting city. It's always nice to take, particularly young actors, over to Broadway and give them a good time. Hmm.
0: Yes, I heard the History Boys had a great time. There were they had nightly reports of where they were after the time. show. A decently <laughs> good time, and
1: boy, have they done well. Yes, yeah. absolutely.
0: Well, it's, it's, you know, when you have to assemble a company of young actors, yeah. if if you have the opportunity to find the next generation yeah. of talent. Yeah. That was extraordinary. When I was reading up about your taking over the National, I was struck by the number of times people talked, certainly within your first season, about you throwing open the windows, welcoming people in. And, of course, this somewhat goes back to the Travel X discussion. But were you consciously trying to alter the perception and or the reality of what the national theatre was, yes, both, both for chiefly
1: um, to provide an arena for as various and exciting a repertoire as possible. Uh, one of if you get money from the box office, it's very simple. You have to produce a show that people want to buy tickets for or you close. Uh, if you get some of your money from a from a patron whether that patron is um a wealthy individual or a group of wealthy individuals the king the church or the government there's always payback wagner managed to find a mad king who was interested only in giving wagner the opportunity to write what wagner wanted to write but it was pretty unstable um mozart had to um had to write music um, satisfactory either to the Emperor Joseph II or the Archbishop of Salzburg, who was out in his ear. Uh, here, we have, for uh, until this last year, been getting quite a lot of our money from a government that was asking us to make our work more accessible. Now, that felt to me to be some a pretty decent ask. Um, I didn't disagree with that. I, I agree with it. But there are strings attached to the 30% that we get from the government and those strings were uh your audience feels to us to be too much of one thing only now if you scratch anybody who works in the theater you'll find not too deep an element of them that doesn't like how homogenous the audience is that doesn't want to be performing every night only to the same kind of people but having said all that the end is never the audience. The end is always the work. There was a problem here in this country about making the audience the object of the exercise. If we get the perfectly balanced audience, all ages, all classes, all races, all backgrounds, all income levels, we've succeeded. That was unhealthy and also kind of pointless and impossible. What I think we were able to do at the National by lowering prices, by doing what everybody's doing now, which is to use the online world creatively uh, to find different people who might want to come to the theatre, by widening the kind of repertoire that we were doing, we got into a kind of, I hope, virtuous spiral. We now don't have one National Theatre audience. There's no such thing. Um, There's... So many different kinds of audiences. Six or seven times a year now, um, or more, um, I'm amused to find press comment on from s- some columnist who's saying, Well, I went to the National Theatre and it was nothing like the usual National Theatre audience. That happens now six or seven times a year because there is no usual National Theatre audience. You came to see the Cherry Orchard, uh, you'd find the kind of people who like to see Chekhov, but because the tickets are only a tenner, you'll find a hell of a lot of other people too. Uh, we can get you a Nigerian audience, we can get you an Asian audience, we can get you a young, hip audience that doesn't like text-based theatre, we can get you a dance audience, we mm. can get you the kind of audience that's going to respond to a show for teenagers, we can get you, if you're a theatre audience, a theatre artist, any kind of audience, because we want your work to be the kind of work you want to make. And if it's the kind of work that the so-called regular audience doesn't want, it doesn't matter anymore, because there is no such thing. I strongly feel, very strongly feel, and I think there are some Broadway producers who would bear this out and who would agree with me, uh, that there is not, that you don't need any more uh, to depend on the core audience. The core audience, it's terrific. And you you want them when you're giving them some, when you want to do something that they're going to like. But the death of the theatre would be the relentless dependence on the core audience, in the end, not because there's anything wrong with the core audience, we love them, but because if you don't look far and wide for everybody who might enjoy it, if you could persuade them in, uh, your repertoire is going to shrink, shrink and shrink and shrink.
0: There is more of a tradition in England, I believe, of politically oriented theatre yeah. than there is in the US. Yeah. As a subsidised theatre, as the national theatre, do you still have the opportunity to do political work and can you do work that embraces all politics or is it slanted, as I believe some have accused? Um, Yeah, I don't think it's
1: slanted at all. I think think it's... um, It's hard to think of nakedly pro-establishment theatre anywhere that's ever been much good. Hmm. The theatre is, by its nature, sceptical. Um, it's sceptical, it's, it's ironic, it's critical, it's, it rubs against the grain, it's subversive. Some writers have to be secretly subversive. Some writers have to write in code. Others don't. I mean, I'm now talking writers over 2,500 years, but let's confine it to the last 400 years. But theatre that is celebratory of a political status quo uh, tends not to be that interesting. Um, look at, as you occasionally have done, uh, the approved plays of the Soviet era in Russia... They're not interesting. Hmm. Um, Bulgakov is a much, much more interesting playwright than the playwrights who were writing uh, popularly approved plays for the Moscow Well, I, I
0: grant you that the plays, political theatre, to be interesting, has to be opposition. It has to be The question the... is do you have the opportunity to do that at the National? Are you interested well, you
1: know, in what doing we, that? What I like to do is rub against the grain. And we have rubbed against the grain to the extent that. A couple of years ago, we did a play which 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 caused the Guardian, which is the I guess the um, the house newspaper of the arts community. It is the left liberal uh, newspaper, it's the newspaper I read. Uh, the Guardian was so outraged that it could not stop publishing um, attacks. In fact, it, 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 on this play, it was called "England People Very Nice." It, I think the Guardian got the play wrong, but it was it was a play that. Um, had fun with the whole idea of repeated ways of immigration into this country. Um, and it asked questions about uh, integration and assimilation, which were uncomfortable, which rubbed against the left-liberal consensus. I directed it myself. Um, and I don't think it proposed any particular political solution to the issues that are generated by first and and second generation waves of immigrants. What it did was, through humour, through irony, and through um, an observation of a repeated pattern with repeated waves of immigrants over 400 years, um, it, it shook the audience up a bit. Well, The Guardian... Got very hot on the collar about it, and there was one marvelous day when it f- decided it would publish seven reactions from seven diverse voices about this play, all of whom they all of whom were outraged by it, um, and they were so diverse that they were all Guardian columnists,
0: um, <laughs> and all happy. Yeah, uh,
1: but so I think that play was very much a play that those who would like to caricature the English subsidised theatre as being entirely in the grip of a kind of unthinking knee-jerk left liberalism, had a lot of trouble with. But what it did is it rubbed against the grain. It rubbed against our audience's grain. A play that rubbed very much with the grain was a play like Stuff Happens um, from 2004, um, where the balance of the play in front of our audience shifted They simply refused to give Tony Blair any kind of a hearing. Mm. Uh, we, co- we couldn't find an audience at the National Theatre in 2004 that thought that we had joined in that war on anything other than um, false premises. Mm. And it made the play, I think, a very different experience to the play that was then seen in an American production in the United States. Now, it's not hard to... It's not hard to rustle up a collection of newspaper columnists um, to make a play like Stuff Happens feel like yet another example of, um, of the English theatre's unthinking, unthinking soft leftism. As it turned out, that play was expressing an almost universal national consensus. The only people by 2004 who thought that we'd made anything other than the most terrible, tragic possibly mendacious, possibly um, certainly destructive intervention in that war. The only people who, uh, who didn't think that were writing columns in right-wing newspapers. Uh, everybody else agreed with the play that was possibly a flaw.
0: <laughs> Two last quick questions, because I have to let you go. Kwame Kwearma, mm-hmm. who is on the board of the National, has just been named uh, as the Artistic Director of Center Stage yeah, it's in a Baltimore wonderful, a wonderful in the U.S. Amazing appointment. As an artistic director to a new artistic director, is there some piece of advice that you would like to give him or perhaps have given him? Well, we're getting together, so I will <laughs> say, So I'll certainly be having this
1: conversation with him. He will know what to do. Um, he will know what to do. Uh, and I don't know that city, not at all. But one of the things he's got to do and will do uh, is is start from the premise that his theater is a civic resource it's got to be knitted into the life of his city and I know he'll do that because he is he he um he i think very passionately thinks the theater to be um an absolutely vital part of public life of civic life and i th- I think that that one of the reasons why that's such a fantastic appointment is that a man of enormous humanity and intelligence a playwright of extraordinary flair and power uh, is also somebody who is drawn like a moth to a flame to the public life of the city, the community he's part of and and I think Baltimore won't know what's hit it
0: Final question I read that one of the things you're looking to do in the future is a production of Lear with Simon Russell. Yeah, not me. I'm not going to
1: direct it. But oh, we you just want make... to see it at the National? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm through with Lear, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, Sam, Sam Mendes is going to direct it. So,
0: Are there other pieces either that you want to direct or that you believe belong on the national stage that not even next year or the year after, but you'd, you'd like to see there? Obviously, you can't speak to the new work because that may have not yet been written. No, obviously that that that's right.
1: I've, um, what what? Before I go, I'm I'm not going to stay forever. But um, uh, before I go, it would be great if there was a new Alan Bennett. Um, I would love to go on producing on the big stages, particularly on the Olivier stage, big plays by the younger generation, so that by the time I move on, uh, the younger generation of writers feels the way the generation that's represented by people like uh, Bennett and Frayne and Hare and Stopov, feel like them that the best thing to do is to get the big audience breathing, thinking, feeling, laughing with their plays. I'd love to have, I'd love to have felt that I'd done something about that. Um, Me personally, plays I want to do. Well, I want to do, uh, there's a couple of Shakespeare's more that I want to do before I'm over. Um, I'd like to do Othello. And um, what's marvellous about running something like The National is that you always see something, you always see the place in its totality. And when I leave The National, I would be very reluctant to return again to the life of a freelance director. I I don't really want to do that. I would like to go on feeling that there was some kind of way I could go on producing as well as directing. Hmm. I really like working with other directors on plays that I admire but wouldn't necessarily direct well myself. And um, I hope I hope that won't stop being a part of my life.
0: And on that note, Sir Nicholas Heitner, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Centre.
1: I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Taz Matar. Our post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosic. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded in Amacham Studios in London. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.